Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. Professor Fister, thank you so much for joining us today. So I'll begin by um, asking you a, a general question about the field. Um, when people talk about the development of historical climatology and climate history, yours is one of the first names that comes up. And I wonder, can you describe what originally attracted you to the idea that past climate changes influenced human history? And what challenges did you need to overcome? Okay. When I was a young PhD student in history at the University of Bern, I was invited to join the team of Professor Bruno Messerli at the Institute of Geography. This was rather unusual at the time, but more than 50 years ago, Messerli was already convinced that climate studies would become important in the future and that they should also include the humanities. And uh, so I was included into the team in order to get him achieve his objective. In my time as an assistant in the Messerly team, I cooperated with young colleagues. Uh, one among them was Heinz Zumbühl, a future world-renowned specialist of historical glacier studies, and Heinz Wanner, with whom I have written our recent book. And in this team, I learned how historians could contribute to climate research, and I wrote a dissertation between history and uh, geography, linking climate with economic and social aspects, just for the canton of Bern. And then I got some uh, subsidies and I could uh, access a habilitation. This is an advanced PhD uh, about the period 1525 to 1860 in Switzerland. The important for me was the early environmental movement that emerged in the 1970s in Europe with Denis Antonella Meadows raising the question of the limits to growth that is still uh, important today. And also I was impressed by events packet about his bestseller, I think 1962, about the waste makers. In the 1990s, Together with Austrian environmental scientist Verena Winiwarte, I established what is now the European Society for Environmental History, ESEH, modeled a little bit according to ESEH. However, environmental history, let alone climate history, did not provide a springboard for an academic career. Uh, 
So I worked my way into neighboring fields, such as agricultural history, very important, population history, energy history, very important, and economic history, to which I added the study of natural disasters in the 1990s. And so it was enough, then you get the full professorship in the late 1990s. And climate history came to the forefront uh, after the turn of the millennium, when the climate problem became more urgent and when the University of Bern became one of the leading centers of climate research in Europe. And oh, I owe my career in no small part to long-term institutional support, a, st a stable family environment and a robust health which I have been able to maintain thanks in part to modern medicine. My former PhD student, Damiel Kramer, has characterized my path with the following words. I quote him, perseverance, resourcefulness, a bit of doggedness, and a keen sense of technical and scientific progress have allowed Pfister to approach his goals step by step. He never strayed from his path, even though he sometimes walked a fine line, end of quote. Yes, it was, uh, I was very, very lucky indeed. About the obstacles. First, the skepticism of historians had to be overcome. I succeeded to do this first in Switzerland and then uh, also in Germany, later on in the Anglo-Saxon world. It was more difficult to overcome the skepticism of natural scientists, uh, many of whom initially branded documentary data as subjective. In the last 20 years, however, uh, documentary data have gained full recognition, not least because of uh, the increasing, uh, increasing attention paid to natural disasters and climate extremes. Well, we are all very grateful for your robust health, uh, Professor Pfister. Um, in, in, in recent years, there have been a number of, of big picture books that introduce readers to the impacts of, of past climate changes on centuries, thousands of years, even, even tens, hundreds of thousands of years of human history. Uh, why, in your view, do we urgently need your new book, which focuses on the past millennium in Europe? What does that scale of analysis reveal about the history of human responses to climate change and maybe the future as well? Okay, comparison with the past has always played a central role in assessing the present and looking to the future. According to the Italian philosopher Benedetto Croce, Historiography is always an interpretation of the past in the light of the present. And this also applies to climate history. The rapid increase in global temperatures since the late 1980s is unique compared at least to the last 2,000 years, I would say now, uh, back to the times of Ötzi uh, more than 5,000 years ago. And this uh, change, this drastic change, has fundamentally changed our view of past climate. It is no longer the temperature, uh, the temperate 20th century climate, which is compared to earlier colder or warmer periods, but the current era of rapid warming. 
Therefore, it's time for a new history of climate and society, one which is appropriate to the present situation. Western and Central Europe are rich in documentary data that go back to the high Middle Ages, last late uh, 12th century. This has made it possible for the first time to reconstruct temperature conditions in individual seasons. Winter and summer temperatures can be more or less reconstructed in sufficient density uh, until then, uh, until 1150, and then from uh, then, the, this time on, it's much better. Spring temperatures are available from 1200 onwards, and autumn temperatures are only available from 1500 onwards because autumn is a um, difficult season. And from 1500 onwards, the Czech climatologist Peter Toplovolny at the University of Brno estimated monthly temperatures for Germany, Switzerland, and the Czech Republic within, uh, of course, error limits uh, based, it is based on temperature indices. And on the basis of our data, we have been able to prove that the transition of individual seasons from the high Middle Ages to the Little Ice Age, uh, and from the Little Ice Age to the uh, modern warm period occurred at, in different seasons. We have to get a seasonal uh, aspect. In general, it, it can be stated that the Little Ice Age was a winter phenomenon because winter were, winters were colder from the 11th to uh, the end of the 19th century, colder than in the 20th century. And then the period from 1170 to 1300 has a unique character. In this period, warm summers were two and a half times more frequent than cold ones. And the philosophist and botanist Albert the Great describes that olive trees were widespread in the Cologne area around 1250, and they, the, the trees bore fruits in warm years. When comparing the course of climate with the history of society, most books are limited to just tracing the effects of climate fluctuations on society. And for this reason, these accounts tend to overstate the importance of climate, as it is also the case in some articles uh, by natural scientists in prestigious journals such as Nature. Uh, they just add, because it's sexy, some remarks about, uh, about history, but uh, histories, historians are never asked for review, and so uh, it's really not very uh, pleasant. We have therefore chosen a different path, a different approach, starting from a human indicator that is available for the whole millennium and uh, which is more or less affected by uh, weather and climate. This is population, the number of people. But in addition to climate, three other indicators have to be considered. Pandemics, namely the plague, Wars that contributed to the spread of uh, epidemics and uh, were, were wasteful for uh, for people and for uh, resources, and finally innovations, namely in the fight against epidemics 
and in the increase in efficiency in agriculture, which is very important to change most parameters. And this approach shows that periods of warm summers were accompanied by an increase in population. On the other hand, plague epidemics, together with cold and wet periods, cause population losses. And uh, populations gradually emancipated and freed themselves from uh, climatic impacts after 1750. And finally, very important, it is clearly, we clearly show that today's climate stress cannot be just attrib attributed to industrialization. We must differentiate between the primary industrialization based on cold and the giant and the uh, secondary industrialization based, based on uh, oil and gas, uh, because there was is a, is a, a huge difference in the amount of energy that was uh, used that came from the Middle East uh, fields and that flooded the markets from the 1950s onwards, reducing the gasoline in Europe to one fifth and then or less. And energy no longer had a price. It could be wasted, and it was wasted. And from 1958, CO2 concentrations rose four and a half times faster than in the previous, previous period. And the rapid global temperature rise followed 30 years later. And you can see that uh, scientists who, who dealt with, with CO2, they knew the capacity of CO2. But given the fact that the warming was slow, uh, they did not sound the alarm. And this changed after 1958, when uh, scientists sounded the alarm. Uh, it is Al Gore has uh, written down what he has seen this curved as a young uh, student, and he was shocked when, when he saw the, the uh, 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 this curve of CO2 rising. It was a, a lasting impression in his life. And you see uh, that it's very important uh, to distinguish between these two periods. It's a pity that I cannot show you the curve, which is really shocking. Now that's, that's very interesting because, of course, one reason that emissions are starting to decline in many industrialized countries has to do with the decline, in some cases, collapse of coal uh, here in the United States, in Britain, elsewhere. Um, and one reason that RCP 8.5, right, this most extreme projection of the future is turning out to be less likely now, has to do with um, the nightmare scenarios about dramatically increased coal consumption uh, no longer seeming remotely plausible. So, but what you're doing is saying that, you know, coal is not as important as, as we've been thinking. It's all this other stuff that we haven't really started to address sufficiently yet. Oil, gas, right? That uh, is more central to our current predicament. Um, okay, so you have long contributed to and, and published in a number of distinct disciplines that are essential to uncovering past climate changes and determining their impacts on human populations. Yet despite your expertise in several disciplines, including scientific disciplines, you decided to write this book with a distinguished climatologist whom you've known for many decades, Heinz Wanner. Um, what did that partnership allow you to achieve? Uh, did you encounter any challenges 
in that partnership? And, and do you recommend collaborations like that uh, in climate history going forwards? Books on the history of climate change have been written either by climatologists or by historians so far, because the scientific cultures of the natural sciences and the humanities are uh, difficult to reconcile. It is indeed unusual for a historian uh, and a, hist a climatologist to work so closely together. How did it come about? Uh, about? We had a joint time as assistants at the Institute of Geography in Bern, and we had a first experience in, 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 in interpreting documentary data uh, in the framework of an international pro project in the 1990s. And in this process, Wander became familiar with historical climatology, and A became uh, familiar with the logic and the results of climate research. And after our retirement in 2009 and 2010, we decided to write a book together. And for a long time, it remained a declaration of intent. Then five years ago, we agreed for the first time uh, on the structure of the book, uh, on the different chapters and who should write uh, uh, them, the climatologist Wander, the historian Pfister, or both. But it is essential that both of us read the concept and agreed of the concept of the book, and we uh, read the whole text several times in English and in German and checked it critically. It was a fruitful cooperation, was a win-win situation. But such a situation comes about when each partner becomes familiar with the evidence, the working method and the logic of the other side and tries to understand it. And this requires uh, intensive discussions over years. But in the end, you get some results with this uh, also hard evidence for the scientists and hard evidence for historians. And it's very important because we would like uh, uh, that our book are uh, read by scientists and historians. One of the um, most valuable contributions of the book uh, for me is that uh, Climate and Society in Europe is an accessible volume, but it's also not afraid to delve deeply into technical details about the workings of the climate system, for example, or the methods by which um, paleoclimatologists and historical climatologists identify um, past climate changes. And I'm wondering how important it was for you to explain these concepts to a general audience. Okay, the book is also conceived to be a door opener for national scientists and historians to learn about the procedures and the logics of the other side. And it was, the book was deliberately written without using technical details, formula, abbreviations, terms, uh, which are perhaps clear for historians and scientists, but not for the other side. And this, for this reason, it can also serve as a basis for students and PhDs. And the eighth, seventh and eighth chapter, the big chapter about, uh, about the extremes can and is used uh, as a reference. This was 
deliberately also uh, tailored to include stories, real stories about people and their experience with climate. For instance, about the Spanish Armada, about the way in which uh, people uh, witnessed the terrible uh, cold shock of uh, January 1709, when uh, from one within one night, uh, temperatures plummeted by 20 degrees. It was before it was it was rainy and warm, and then it was 20 degrees cold. And when people in Paris tried to open their doors in the morning, it was frozen. They couldn't get out. And if when people tried to walk uh, in the streets, they fell down and they broke hands and feet because it was extremely slippery. And uh, uh, authorities had to lit big fires in order to, to warm people up. And uh, in other parts, uh, people just froze to death and also cattle. That is also one, uh, is one episode that is uh, important for people. Uh, we have other uh, of such uh, episodes, for instance, the Armada. The Armada is uh, usually not known, the Armada, uh, thinking of the Armada 1588, that it, it has a very important mythological component. Hubert Lamb explained it, but now it's, uh, it is a little bit forgotten, but we, we brought it back. Also, we have included a feature which is threatening for the future, which is extremely well documented in the past. These are uh, very, very warm summers, uh, leading to uh, forest fires, to very uh, low water levels, to the mass death of cattle, and also, and also to the breakdown of energy. And there are two, at least two of these episodes which are very well covered. Uh, they should be a warning for the authorities today to be prepared for such events, because such events will come in the future, we are sure, because the means are shifting. And it means that extreme events will multiply and they will become more severe and more extreme. And we have more than 10 of uh, these extremes. We can also show, because uh, the, the, the details are given by the chronicles, that all these uh, extreme seasons were preceded by a very warm and dry spring. And so an extremely warm and dry spring can be considered as a, as a, as a warning, as an alarming sign. And this part of the book is also important, I would say, for authorities and the hope they will not be just overwhelmed as they were by COVID. It was a, a terrible mess. So watch out for hot, dry springs uh, in particular. That's interesting. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book is, is the extent to which uh, you explain how scholars work, the, the sources and methods, the models they use, Often um, books in our field focus on what seems to have happened in the past. They, in my opinion, don't adequately address why we think something happened or, or how, even more broadly, how we think in our field. 
Why did you place so much emphasis on sort of explaining evidence, methods, on models, um, on answering those why and how questions? I would say the why and how questions are absolutely important because of these questions that are interesting, interesting for people. Just what happened? Just you have uh, some, uh, some, uh, some year and you have uh, a, a battle uh, and, and you know who were the winner and who lost it. Uh, that is the way, the kind of history people, ordinary people don't like. But as soon as you explain the whys, and you show how, and you show how people witnessed it, what it means, they become interested. And we would also like uh, to buy our book to the ordinary public, and it is well sold. It begins already. These are the, the how and the why questions are very important uh, for people, and I think also for students. Just facts, okay. But uh, you have to explain the facts. If you have uh, some extreme, uh, if, for instance, these extremes I, I mentioned about the extreme summers, you can uh, physically explain why these summers occurred. And I think it's important and also to have a, 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 nice, a nice straw, a nice figure that explains it to people. We, we feel that it's very important to bring uh, climate closer to people, that they realize that it matters for them and it mattered in the past. Okay. Uh, in the book, one thing that struck me is that you are, I think, among the first to use the terms boreal little ice age and austral little ice age. Um, the dating of the Little Ice Age, as, as we know, of course, often provokes controversy, partly because there is a relatively short period in which both the southern and northern hemispheres experience some cooling. And uh, environmental historian Greg Cushman has pointed this out. Um, do you think these two terms, Boreal Little Ice Age and Austral Little Ice Age, should be more widely used in the literature, uh, perhaps more widely used even than the plain old Little Ice Age? Uh, yes, indeed, because uh, we have now uh, enough evidence from climate and glaciers. We have very, very detailed information on glaciers. And now, uh, determining the character of uh, these ages, and it's already difficult to, uh, to, to define a little ice age, a boreal little ice age, but at least there is some uh, coherence in the Northern Hemisphere about uh, a rough time frame. And uh, if you uh, use a fuzzy time, it means nothing because some people say it, it, it began it began 1500, others 1560s. Uh, some people say that it ended in 1700, which is certainly not the case because uh, it went on until the end of the 19th century for very obvious reasons, also because they are the, the, the parameters of the earth. The hockey stick, which is now criticized, we, we got it again. And uh, so we, we should use a term which is meaningful for the book. And uh, with Little Ice Age is too fuzzy because people define it like they want. But we, we, we can prove that uh, a kind of little ice age occurred in the Northern Hemisphere, but not on the Southern Hemisphere, because 
uh, it is very clear why this happened, because uh, the southern, the, the oceans of the southern hemisphere had to be cold enough before. That uh, explains the delay. It's very clear. But uh, we have already also in, in Canada clear signs of a cooling after 1275, and that is uh, it's a very typical year because we have the eruption of Quilotoa in Ecuador, which is also was also a marker in 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 Europe. And from then, uh, we in, uh, the northern hemisphere entered a cooling. I would say slowly, not so rapidly as it often thought, but the cooling began clearly around this time. And it, I would say, it culminated in the 1340s, which were among the worst decades in the millennium. Very shocking for all people who, who lived then, huh? because we have two coldest, the two coldest summers in the millennium, 1346, 1347. Uh, we had also uh, the worst flood in Europe, 1342, which was worse than the flood of this year in, in, uh, in the western part of the country. And we uh, finally have the plague epidemic in 1347. Uh, it, uh, it came from China or from inner Asia and then uh, went into Europe from Italy. which is very similar to COVID, I would say. Weather. Our tour will be used in the future is up to each individual researchers. But I would say in any case, it's more suited for the conditions to describe conditions in the Northern Hemisphere than the old, plain, ambiguous Little Ice Age. And you just alluded to this a moment ago, but I also wanted to ask about the context of uh, the publication of the book, because of course, it was finalized and it's being published uh, amid extreme weather events that testify to the intensification of the climate crisis, as well as, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I wonder if this context of what some people would, would call disaster shaped the completion of the book and if it maybe um, cause you to think differently about infectious disease, for example, than you might have otherwise? It, is, it can be generalized that people only learn from disasters and crises. Otherwise, they will not move. And uh, because we have big crises before, mainly the crisis of the plague, which came in uh, 1348, and lasted for more than 300 years. It was a little bit more than COVID, and it shaped society for this long period. And it was a much bigger shock than COVID because uh, 35 to 40% of population died uh, until 1400. There were several waves, like in COVID, and uh, this is, uh, it was certainly, undoubtedly, the major killer in Europe. We made just a few remarks about this. On the other hand, the spread of conspiracy theories in the context of COVID-19, which is and was a problem, uh, deepened my perception 
perhaps also the understanding of the conspiracy theories in the context of the witch craze in the late 16th and early 17th century. There are many, many similarities. And so I learned from the from the COVID uh, conspiracy theory for the conspiracy theory in the in the witch craze. This is the learning I had. Yeah, and and so as one of the founders of climate history, um, I want to ask: Are you satisfied with the state of the field today? And what questions, in your view? Um, as you've been alluding to, require more attention? And are there any that, in your opinion, receive too much attention? What needs more attention is uh, precipitation, because precipitation is also badly neglected in the instrumental period. But for, uh, for people in the past, uh, for agricultural pro production, it is as least as important as temperatures, but it's uh, far more difficult to reconstruct uh, precipitation because you would need a, a more dense uh, field of measurements and also uh, of uh, documentary evidence. It's not easy, but it should be done. And we have, uh, to a certain extent, to say so, we have a tool to do with this, which is the Euroclimist uh, databases. It's a very, I would say, sophisticated databases. I, I inaugurated it. I built it up to some extent. More than 300,000 data to date can be accessed freely. And this would be a tool to deal with precipitation. And precipitation would be important. Also, we, had, we uh, could not deal with disasters because we had a maximum of 400 pages for the book. And so we had to not, not to look on disasters. Disasters will go on to become important. And this is also uh, something which is important uh, in the future, which should get more attention, but it already gets much attention, but... Uh, Precipitation is clearly neglected also by climatologists. Perhaps people should not deal with very tiny questions, reconstructing some uh, uh, unimportant wiggle. And the people who deal with these small changes, they have a tendency to overemphasize this. We should uh, rather work on the big picture, which is... Uh, uh, telling a lot more than uh, some, some uh, small case, unless it's uh, uh, integrated in, in, in a big field. We have too much small studies which stand for themselves without being integrated in a bigger picture. Yeah, I, I agree with those points. Um, per precipitation, I think, uh, in particular. Um, last question. Um, you and Professor Vonner dedicate this book to your grandchildren. Um, what, in your opinion, does the past millennium of climate change in Europe suggest about the future your grandchildren, my children, uh, will face? What is the single most important thing we should learn from this past that you've uncovered? We doubt whether 
there will be enough time to deal with global warming. Uh, because it's really the time that is missing. Uh, we are both sure that it will be possible uh, to solve the issue, but uh, any building up of a, of a, a, a new uh, energy system, uh, an economy built on a new energy system, this requires a lot of time. Uh, we can this we can show it uh, from the past. And what will be important in the future is that people will be uh, will have to be flexible. The most important because we don't know exactly what they will be facing. We only know that they will have to learn to live in a very different world, which is very different from the present. And the most important property to be learned at present is flexibility and also uh, yeah, to learn to live with less uh, will be important to to live with less resources in the future. People should be already trained to live with less. I must say, for my own past, we we, we lived with much less. We lived in a in a three thousand watt society, uh, and I must say, it was I enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun, though we had uh, not so many. Uh, the tablets and and a television, all this we don't we didn't have it, and we, we couldn't afford uh, to 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 fly uh, to the to the Seychelles uh, in uh, uh, to for for vacation. We had to, to to get vacation in our mountains, and I I loved it. I, I could not complain. It was a good use, and I think that people will have to learn. To be flexible, to not to be shocked, to not be uh, traumatized if things would turn to somehow to the bad, to the bad side, which will certainly be the case. But uh, I hope, really, desperately, that we will uh, we will be able to turn the tide. Absolutely, and uh, your new book climate and society in Europe um, gives us uh, a little bit of insight into precisely how uh, we might do that. Professor Pfister, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you for, for the good questions. <laughs> thank you both. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>